Right, so I started doing this about four hours ago, and then someone called me, and then I ADHD'd myself into not finishing it. So we're starting a new one. The first one, which is in a relatively decent acoustic environment. <laughs> I'm surrounded by soft furnishings, indoors, no movement. And, okay, that's a good one. So, today, I woke up uh, at 1.30pm. I was due to meet Tom, who I work with, at 1. And I woke up at 1.30 to a message going, where are we going to meet for lunch? And I had to be very honest and say I've slept. But, uh, consistent, that's another yawn, a consistent life goal is to never have to rely on an alarm clock, or at least very seldom rely on an alarm clock. The idea that you kind of shake your body and tell your body to um, get less rest uh, seems counterintuitive. So um, that's a, a big, uh, like a big life goal of mine. Never use an alarm clock. So I very set, I very rarely set an alarm clock. Um, and then sometimes there are consequences like this. But despite setting, despite waking up at one thirty, uh, and it now being about nine thirty p.m., uh, you will notice uh, that's been two consecutive yawns. Uh, woke up about one thirty. Went had a coffee with Tom. Tom uh, is co-founder of my production company. Came down from Edinburgh to. Tech, although tech doesn't seem to really describe what he does, more kind of produce or like just be there, <laughs> just have have me not worry about stuff, um, set standards, um, and I suppose and this is what I started talking about uh, before I got rudely interrupted by a head by my hairdresser calling to say they have to move my appointment. Uh, that is the fourth and final yard. Uh, the I'm working with professionals. I've spent a lot of time doing indie stuff. And I do have this theory, uh, and I spoke about this on the last episode I did uh, when I was in Graz with Jack. And Jack kind of spoke about how, you know, he's working without a middleman and he is touring off his own steam and setting up his own ticket links and, you know, liaising with venues himself. And he's really good at it. And I think it's a really good thing. And... One thing I was quite struck by is how he, he sees it as a form of identity, right? Because he kind of is from a a music background, punk music, I think, background. And so a lot of the music is kind of caught up in this, like, countercultural narrative of, you know, putting a middle finger up to the man. And, you know, I, I think sometimes it's easy to... It's easy to persuade yourself and also others that a certain way that you're doing things, a certain way that you're living your life is because of some broader philosophy that maybe you don't even believe, uh, but it but it helps to justify doing something that you're not quite sure of, right? And I think I had a bit of that with, you know, me being somewhat indie as a stand-up, you know, for a very, very long time, uh, for doing stand-up for 10 years. And I promise you that was the last year and that was a promise I really was unable to make. Um, you know, so, so basically, a lot of acts after two or three years, if they're good, they'll get signed to an agency, and they'll, you know, th- there's a, there's a kind of a path set for them. I didn't do that. I came into comedy kind of through the back door, um, and you know, started doing, well, you know, started doing stand up like everyone else, right? I did a couple of open mics, but then started to do professional level comedy in a slightly odd way. 
based in Japan. I did join a talent agency in Japan, but it wasn't a comedy agency per se. It was light entertainment and modeling and stuff. And then I kind of got a few gigs above my pay grade. And oh, this is an embarrassing number of yours now. Um, and so I have always kind of been that kind of outsider. I've always, I've always liked the idea that, that I do punch above my weight and that you know I might be booked for a spot on a club as an open spot. I do a bit less of that now, but um, I still do do trial spots, and I like the fact that I'm like considerably better than people might expect me to be, by virtue of the fact that I've gone longer than someone at my level doing those spots should be doing. Blah 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 blah. And I think, um, yeah, and I've spent a long time kind of enjoying the fact that I've always self-produced, or you know, had my own production company, or I've, you know, my last show that I filmed, I basically did it myself. Uh, a good friend came. Uh, well, the yawns are just a thing though, aren't they? The good friend came to, to London and you know we set up all the cameras together. I set the lighting up myself. I set my mic up myself. Um, I, you know, I was even, you know, a, f a friend turned up and I just gave him a tenner. I went, oh, help me do the door. You know, that, that kind of thing. And um, yeah, ge generally I'd say I've liked having that as part of my identity and I think people have seen me as somewhat of an outsider, never been on TV in the UK. Um, never kind of risen the ranks of the of the main clubs. But last night when I filmed my show, I filmed my show at the Pleasance Theatre. And the Pleasance has a bit of a name, partly because of Edinburgh, because it's one of the prestigious venues in Edinburgh. But also... Jesus Christ, every fourth sentence I'm yawning, why? Uh, but also the, the Pleasance Theatre in Islington, London, does have a reputation of putting on very, very high-quality comedy. They have a studio space above the Pleasance Theatre, uh, 60 seats I'd say and they uh, put on a best of Edinburgh season uh, at the end of uh, you know at the end of the Edinburgh festival so it starts in November and uh, I asked if I could do my show in it and this was the first year that they said yes you can and it was filmed by Next Up Comedy and next up, I've been on my radar for a while. They were going to release my 2019 show, uh, but there was all sorts of issues. We still may release it. Um, but Tom, who's one of the team there, I mean, <laughs> by now you've normalised the yawning. Uh, you know it's not you. He uh, has been you know, really nice and come and see my shows and been very supportive. I'm rambling. The point is, Working with a professional videographer team and working in a theatre, which is, uh, you know, basically, they kind of set the standard, I think, for professionalism, does make a huge difference. And I must say, I really liked it. I really liked having things like a call sheet with very clear expectations of where I needed to be and when. And I really liked working with a bunch of technicians who basically know... Um, no request was too big. You know, when, when I've done shows at, at free venues at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival where you're basically given the room for free or very, very minimal cost with the expectation that it might not be perfect. Uh, I, 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 I've tried to make some improvements. You know, I've, we've tried to maybe rig a couple of our own lights to slightly increase the production value or, you know, swap out a mic cable because it will sound better. All that. Sometimes that's met with resistance, right? Because there's a misalignment of incentives. Whereas working at the Pleasance Theatre, where their goal is to put on the best shows possible, um, and they have 
full-time technicians who really know their stuff, the incentives are perfectly aligned. You know, they want the visiting productions to put on the best possible version of their show. And my show has very, very limited production. You know, I have a banner behind me, a big kind of fabric banner that I got made uh, with a funny quote saying I'm up for dishing it out, but I'll draw the line at taking it. And that's, you know, lit. And then we brought a couple of LED bars to light that. So a couple underneath. And a couple mounted from the top. And uh, those obviously needed to be patched into their lighting rig. And they were very, very happy to help us do that. And, you know, provided DMX cables. And when we were setting up the cameras, or rather I say we, that's the thing. It's not me. It was the team, the, the next up team. The, they knew what to do. They... They'd already scouted the venue. They'd already filmed shows there before. They knew the angles that worked. Um, we'd had a long production call uh, a couple of weeks back where they said, you know, what kind of look are you going for? What are you sure you want to get? Uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, there was a time, there, there, there were two lights, uh, kind of fill lights um, on either side of the stage, kind of in the wings. And they had a blue gel and it wasn't quite the look I was going for. And so, you know, about 15 minutes before the house opened, I said, look, I think I, think I want to change them to orange. And, you know, in all, you know, in all my previous experience of doing stuff like this, it's always like, make do. And a lot, a lot of the gigs that I've done have been really makeshift, right? You know, like room at the back of a pub, and you're kind of pleading with them to not make cocktails during the show because it makes a noise. And, you know, the, there's just a buzz coming out the speaker because there's been no ground loop isolation and you know it's just like the the when all of those e when all of the easy stuff has been dealt with right when there's no doubt at all in the pleasance theater that the lighting and sound are going to be absolutely fine and the front of house is going to be fine and you know when everything has been dealt with to a sufficiently high standard that's when you have the bandwidth and the capacity to start thinking about stuff like look i'm not i think this gel would be better if we changed it to red or orange are you happy to do that and that person's got the time to do that because they're not f flapping about doing other stuff. And also, they kind of care. You know, they, they want the show to be the best version possible. So that's what happened. They, you know, that's, they swapped that out. But that's just one example of, of you know, something was not quite right. Um, and we made it really good. So really, it was kind of all, all down to me. And it's quite a, an empowering feeling that, you know, Tom, the director, he said, he said it in a nice way. He said, um, it's up to us to worry about the filming. He didn't say it like that, <laughs> as if to say, "Piss off, you're bothering me." He, you know, when I when I said, you know, when I asked him a couple of questions, he said, "You know, all I want you to do is focus on doing the best possible show you can, and we're there to capture it. Let us worry about the filming. We'll make it look great. Just do the best you can in front of the audience." And it was a lovely bit of advice. Um, Joe Pasquale uh, also gave me similar advice. He just said, "Look, don't be worried about filming your show. You've got an audience um, in front of you, and you just got to make them laugh. And you've done that a hundred times before, and I have." And he was right. I I kind of did a little bit of my own warm-up before the show. Like, I went out and did a couple of housekeeping stuff, you know, explaining about the filming and whatever. But I used it as an opportunity to kind of read the room. I deliberately didn't go on mic. I kind of, like, pretended to be me, you know, pre-show. And that really helped. But, yeah, my, my kind of my, my main reflection is comedy, <laughs> comedy does, and I, this is something I've observed but not necessarily experienced too much, Comedy does get easier the higher up the pecking order you go. And by that, I don't mean, you know, you've still got to write the same jokes. You've still got to put out a good performance. You've still got to connect with your audience. Just because you're famous doesn't mean 
you used to stop writing material, although many have writers. Um, but you have all the stuff that, that concerns you as an act coming up, like, you know, people chattering or the venue production being a bit shit or people coming in late or whatever. It's like, you know, the venue has a latecomer policy. After three minutes, you're not allowed in. And that's the rule and it was enforced. And that's because they've got a member of staff at the door doing that. Um, so I guess my point is it was it was a really easy show to do. And it was an easy show to do partly because of all the other kind of compounding benefits of just having done comedy for a longer time. In the audience, at least half of them have seen me before. That's a numbers game, right? Like, that's because I've done it for a while now. And also, I'm getting better. So if I do do a show, there's a higher chance that people who have seen me at that show are keen to see me again. And because I've done lots of shows, that number of people is quite large. So that was great that there were... <laughs> I hate to use the word. Because it doesn't really feel right. But it was, it was fans. It's people who have, you know, they've seen my comedy and they like my comedy and they've come back two or three years in a row. And so that's really great. You know, they, they really want to have a good time. And also they know there's a good chance that I'm going to give them a good time. And, you know, then other people might have seen me do spots. I think a few people came because of that Instagram clip that I did recently that went viral. And, yeah, I'm, I'm, I I need to kind of keep reminding myself that the, the goal is obviously, to, you know, to play these bigger rooms and to build a, big, a bigger audience. But that's not just because it's nice to play to more people. It's because those gigs are better. I give people a better night out when I'm in a nicer space. And when I think about, you know, the, the duty you owe your quote-unquote fan base or the people that want to come and see you, it's better for them. Like I, I would rather invite them into a nice space. I would rather give them a nice, exciting night out. And I think, you know, that, that does mean I've got to kind of think hard about... I guess that quote... the. Uh, I'm so sorry about the audio. I guess to quote the medium is the message uh, fits here as well. You know, like where you, where you're doing the thing, the forum can often communicate a lot about what the thing is. And I think the medium is the message is a is a really like it, you know something that occasionally I kind of remind myself of. of like you know, it, it's not just what you say; it's how you say it. It's not just what's what's written; it's where it's written. Um, and I think you know, playing at the Pleasance Theatre, even though it was the room above it, it lends a certain, you know, they're, they're hanging out in a nice bar beforehand and the front of house staff are really friendly and really good and all that really helps contribute to the quality of their night out. And then they, they turn up to the venue and they sit on nice chairs, you know, they've got foam seating. They're not kind of, you know, put on a bunch of, uh, you know, plastic Ikea chairs or whatever. And I think all this really matters. And so then when the show starts, there's a real sense of excitement. And well, I know that I'm just some guy. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like one of the least special people there are. But it's nice to kind of play the part of being someone special. If for no other reason that it makes the show better. That, hey, this is an event. And the guy that's come to entertain you, he's walking in you know to a nice full room of people excited to see him with lights flashing and you know showbiz pizzazz and i do 
I do acknowledge and appreciate that I need to play that part. And playing that part isn't just about my conduct. And it's not just about my material, but it's also about where I do my shows and the level of production. And, you know, I've been talking to a few acts about the idea of kind of graduating from the the free festival. Doing shows in rooms of backs of pubs. There's a certain earnestness and there's a certain, you know, it really f- it feels like work. It, f- it really feels like I'm doing a job. And... It's obviously so much harder to take a room of people who have been brought into a venue that is... And look, don't get me wrong. The Free Festival has some lovely, lo- lovely rooms. And Alex, who runs it, uh, you know, really tries to, to to create performance spaces that are basic but functional. But there is always a bit of an uphill battle with an audience that are predisposed to thinking, well, this will be crap. Because, you know, why would, why would it be good um, if they're not charging money for it up front and... You know, obviously all the good acts go to the 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 expensive venues. Uh, we're in we're in a room at the back of a pub with a kind of a cobbled together performance space, and um, and so those laughs are really quite quite hard to win. Whereas last night, it was easy. It was really easy. You know, the very first couple of utterances out of my mouth were making them laugh. And it's not just down to me. It's not just because I was saying funny things. It's because I was saying funny things in the right context. And the context was a nice theatre with a nice atmosphere. I think the full house helps. I think people seeing that there's no empty seats, or at least there was one, um, you know, helps them. Validate they've made a good decision. So, yeah, it's it's somewhat at odds with. Oh, this is remarkable. I guess why am I tired? I guess it's because last night, yesterday. Oh, I actually I know why because the last two days I've been um, doing quite a lot. Two days ago I went to go <laughs> stayed at Joe Pasquale's house, which is not a. <laughs> Not a sentence I ever thought I'd be saying, ever. Um, But he was doing Richard Herring's Lesson Square Theatre podcast near to his home, and he very kindly invited me to go and watch it. And seemingly kind of provide a bit of support. You know, like he, I think he was glad that that he had a friend, or at least someone who's friendly to him, um, you know, come and, uh, and, and watch doing something that was maybe a little bit out of his comfort zone. He's an incredible entertainer. Um, but you know he's doing this this Q and A uh, with an interviewer who's very very skilled. He knows how to get things out of people. Uh, so I was going to take the train up, and then there was a storm. So then I drove up, and then it got quite late. And he'd already offered some, you know his spare room to me. He stays in a very beautiful house, and um, yeah. So so I got a decent night's sleep. It is actually, but then I ended up waking up at about nine, driving back to London, and then. You know, just getting ready for the show. So I had a haircut, and oh, that's pointless. My hair looked crap. And getting my clothes ready, and going to the venue at midday, and dropping off all the kind of production gear, the lights and the um, camera that of mine that we were using, and uh, my my clothes and my merch and all that stuff. And then, yeah, kind of before you know it, the show's just started. You know, even if I'm getting to the theatre at five thirty, I'm just kind of doing bits and bobs. Although, you know, I'm not just doing, you know, I'm not, it's not like I was really hands-on, you know, there were, there were like, everything that needed to be done, there was a professional there to do it. Really nice feeling. Um, but still, I'm, you know, I'm on, I'm present. 
and then when the show's done, I spent time after the show talking to people, lots of people that had come. Some people had been, um, yeah, it was really nice. It's really nice to see familiar faces. And then I had a chat to my agent who brought another agent along and I'm really glad it went well in front of her. She made a joke that, you know, I hope you're not crap so I have to drop you. Um, which obviously is a joke, but also, I mean, it's true. <laughs> if I'm terrible, she just drops me. Um, well, I suppose that's also a two-way street. If she's terrible, I drop her. But she was, yeah, very, very, very supportive and uh, said nice things and seemed to be happy. And, you know, I think we've we've got a game plan. And, yeah, hung out with, uh, with, with Tom and a couple of other friends. And then we ended up going to Meat Liquor until 3 a.m. So that probably explains why I wake up at one thirty, a little hangover, and then uh, went for a coffee with Tom. We had a bit of a debrief, talked about all sorts of things to do with the show and future plans, and then I went back, did a bit of washing up and a couple of bits of admin-y stuff, and then I went out to see some friends who live in Barcelona that are in London. Took them to Chinatown to Four Seasons, which is generally a very decent Cantonese-style roast meat place. Their duck, you can get it boneless, and it is absolutely exquisite. It's phenomenal. It's not like Peking duck style. It's like roast duck style. Um, you know, Peking duck has a very kind of crispy, glassy skin. This one, the skin is slightly crispy, but it's um, very fatty, and it's just kind of big chunks of meat. And it's only 30 I think £30 for the whole duck, 35 maybe, which is really good value. And the whole meal, we had you know, two or three plates of rice and noodles and stuff, and uh, all sorts of other bits and bobs, and it all came to under £30 per head, which is, you know, for Chinatown, very good. And um, because there's a lot of really dodgy restaurants in Chinatown, I do get the impression that, you know, the, the, they're just not all equal. But Four Seasons is generally a, a good bet. And then after that, took them for drinks and then popped into Top Secret to go and watch Finn Taylor because I knew he was on and I haven't seen him for a while. He was very funny. Um, he also split the room a bit talking about um, Israel. And he, yeah, he was in good form. And then chatted to Mark and then they were down a spot for the 10.45 p.m. show. So I said, okay, I'll do that. Or rather, please, can I do that? And then they said yes. So then I said, okay, well, so I'll go back to my flat. So then I had it back. And I thought, I'll get this recorded. I'll get the diary done. And then I can go back out, change my top, go back out and do the show. Um, so I probably got about about 25 minutes before I ought to leave. Um, now, in Top Secret, it's also a good example of, like, you know, all the all the basics is done. The reason why the shows are always good, though, the reason why the performance is easy is the production's generally very high. You know, the, the staff know how to start the show with the right sound cues and lighting effects and whatever. Um, anyway, I'm I'm really quite happy, quite happy with where things are at. I've really started to understand what uh, what I enjoy doing, what I'm good at. I think both of those are important. And I... <laughs> I've always known... You know, I've always... Ever since I've started doing comedy, really, I've known I can I can do it. 
you know, I, I know I can, what's the word, I can impress, I think I could impress people, um, particularly bookers, but it's only been the last year or so that I've really understood that I can, I can give people a good night out, like I really can bring the right energy and the right attitude and also the right material, um, but mainly the right kind of showmanship, I suppose, to justify people traveling. I don't know how long, how far some of the people traveled last night, but you know, traveling and giving up their night out for me. And last night was very validating in the sense that one, I know I'm working with the right people. Tom, who who joined RGB Monster now as a co-founder. He gets it. He totally gets it. And he's a very reassuring presence. And, you know, I just know that if he's in the tech box, things are going to go well. But also I know that he's, you know, just got very good creative ideas. And um, so it's really nice. And also having my agent there, I think she really has a sense of where I want to go with my career. And, and I will always be doing stand-up, but I think she knows that I've got other ambitions too. And, you know, that that show at the Pleasant State, I don't, I don't know how much money I would have made. £12 tickets, um, I think I take about 70% of that, so let's call it, eight. I mean, I, maybe a few hundred pounds revenue, so really not not that much. I can make more doing a bucketed show at Top Secret. Um, and obviously, you know, take into account Tom's costs and whatever, it's, the show's made a loss. Um, but that's not the point. The, the point is, this is the, and also the show will make money, because obviously I'll make money from the filming. Um but the point is, this is the model. Go to a nice venue, put on a great show. And I think sometimes in in business, it's really helpful to distill things down to the basics. You know, what is it? What is it that? What is it that I'm actually doing? What is the what is the core loop that defines my my kind of professional? workflow and I think the core loop is I'm putting on some great I'm just putting on great shows and if I put on great shows in enough places I will earn money and my my learning from last night is as you scale there are other there are other benefits more than just the numbers increasing so obviously having more people in does mean more money, right? But it also means you have a kind of a tipping point of an audience where there are enough people in there who are fans of my comedy. That's a good way of putting it. Fans of my comedy rather than fans of me. Fans of my comedy. So already we're off to a good start. And having that number of people, having a, you know, having a greater number of people means that you're playing bigger venues which you benefit from that venue's kind of broader infrastructure and also presumably marketing funnel too you know like if you're playing the really big venues then you start getting on platforms like Ticketmaster which has its own kind of marketing arm so I need to continue to, to scale my audience um, not just for the sake of having a bigger audience but meaning that the audience that does come is going to have a better time 
And that is, of course, at odds with the other thing that I've been thinking a lot about comedy, which is, you know, how enormous the market is and how there are so many untapped markets. You know, this idea that I can go all the way to pick a Bratislava and, you know, put on a show there in a DIY indie way. And that might not be perfect. You know, I might be going to, to a venue that doesn't has never put comedy on before. And that's what I was doing in Japan, right? When I was producing uh, comedy tours in, in English and in Japanese, we were using, in Japanese they call them live houses, um, music venues, which haven't historically put on comedy shows. It's a very, very unusual, actually, for Japan. In the UK, it's a bit more common, you know, that a music venue would put on comedy, but... In Japan, they've never really done that. There's, there's there's separate theatrical spaces for comedy, which are very clinical. They haven't got the right vibe for stand-up. So, yeah, I'm used to playing in slightly inappropriate venues. But, it, you know, th th there's a slight tension. You know, I want to go and kind of enter these new markets and, uh, you know, play to these big audiences in, in markets where the supply is a lot smaller than the demand. Um but also I want to do it in these spaces which lend themselves to putting on a considerably better show. And I don't know what the solution to that is other than, you know, to, or maybe to be even more ambitious in these markets. Um, well, I haven't got any answers. But the conclusion is the filming generally went well. I forgot a couple of bits. It's very frustrating. And I got things in slightly the wrong order. Things were a little bit clumsy. But it doesn't matter. It can't matter. Right? It, you know, if, if I let it matter, then I'll be re-recording it forever. Um, the show I put on for the audience entertained them. And it was great. So that's what's been documented. And that's what people at home are going to watch. And I need to also sincerely believe that this isn't my best work. My best show is ahead of me. And that has to be the case forever. Joe Lysett said about his last show, I think this is the best thing I'll ever make. I felt, felt a bit sad to hear that. I, I hope I never say something like that. I really hope I can, you know. Well, like I was talking to Joe Pasquale. He's been in show business for 40 years. His th he was, we were he was still excited about, you know, what next show he might put on and, what, you know, what that might look like. And, you know, I really hope I, I have that attitude going forward that the show was good and it entertained people. It did the job, but I want something better and even more appeal that will make them laugh even harder. And that's what I'm working on. And for as long as I believe that, I will continue to be a comedian. <laughs>